we'll get into our study. First Thess- I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter one, starting at verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And so, Lord, once again, as we open up your word, especially as we start a new book of the Bible, I pray, Father, that you would meet us again in a practical way, in a way, Father, that we can take these things and add them to our walks, and, Lord, they would have an effect in our lives and then through our lives into the lives of others. So bless the next 45 minutes or so again, Father, that you would teach us and instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. It's now about a year after the writing and the delivery of Paul's first epistle to the church at Thessalonica. If you recall, Paul had come into Thessalonica, he planted a church, he discipled the people, he appointed elders all in a period of about three weeks. We see the occurrence of his entry into this church or into the city in Acts chapter 17, the first part, specifically verses 1 through 4. But as was Paul's practice, he went in. The first place that he went, he taught in the synagogue. What did he do when he taught in the synagogue? Well, what's happening in the synagogue? The word is being presented. It's the purpose of a synagogue. And Paul had an opportunity to speak because, again, he was still looked at as that Pharisee of Pharisees, although God had transformed his life, he used that old life, he used his testimony as an opportunity for the gospel. And so we're told that he reasoned from the scriptures, explained and demonstrated Jesus Christ as Messiah, his suffering, his crucifixion upon the cross, and his rising from the dead. And we're told in Acts chapter 17 that some were persuaded, and I would imagine the persuaded ones were probably the Jews, but it also said a great multitude of the Greeks joined him. And so there was revival in this city just in a matter of three weeks. The Jews caused an uprising, and Paul had to leave very quickly. From Thessalonica, he went to Berea. From Berea, he went into Athens. From Athens, he went into Corinth. And he has written these letters from Corinth. Corinth would be in southern Greece. So shortly after arriving in Corinth, Acts chapter 18, Paul sent Timothy back with the first epistle for the purpose of encouraging the church and seeing that the church grows in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's kind of amazing that he has to leave suddenly and he's wanting to see this church mature in the ways of the Lord. And so he does what he always does. He writes a letter back to them a letter of instruction back to them so that they would continue to grow. And I have to wonder, you know, we know this was of the leading of the Holy Spirit, but I just wonder, Paul, just because you were obedient, just in that little thing, just writing a letter to a, to a church, and, you know, it was five chapters, wasn't a big letter. We're still studying it today, Paul. 2,000 years later, you're still encouraging people. See, you don't know. You don't know the effect that God will have through you, just even in the little things, as long as you're faithful in the little things. It's one day Paul just decided to sit down and write a letter of encouragement, and it continues to change the world even today. Now, that's not because of Paul being Paul. 
That's because of the Holy Spirit working in and then through Paul. And it's the same Holy Spirit that will work in and, and through you. So that quiet time that you spend with your child, maybe you're, you're, you're taking this opportunity that is going to manifest itself in changing the world somehow. Well, even if it just changes your child's life, it, it's worth it. But that child will be able to touch other lives and others and so on and so forth. And so there's always great potential when God's people are faithful in the little things. And so he writes this letter, well, I say this letter, 1 Thessalonians, and we saw in 1 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit was moving very quickly in those days, and the church was flourishing. This church exhibited, we saw in our study, the earmarks of a healthy church. A healthy church, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul made the observation there was an obvious work of faith. Because they had faith, they were able to trust in God, they were busy doing the Lord's work. Secondly, there was an ongoing labor of love. They weren't doing it by compulsion. They were doing it because of the great love of God which has been displayed to them. And they also knew that this love could be displayed through them into the lives of others. Work of faith, labor of love, and there was an outward patience of hope. Hope, trusting in God for tomorrow. Patience, waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul thought that the Lord was going to come back in his day. That's how we are all to conduct our lives, as if Christ is going to come back in our day. I look at the signs of the times and all, and I have to imagine for sure he's coming back in my day. Chuck Smith said the same thing. He didn't in Chuck's day. May not in my day, but it doesn't matter. Continue to be patient. Patient in the hope that I have in the Lord and in God's word. All of this may even have been an inspiration after he let Cor left Corinth and wrote an epistle back to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, it says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, because we know love is what will endure. But nonetheless, because he saw that, I would imagine Paul, Paul learned lessons even in the people that he was teaching. He saw this flourishing in the church and it touched his heart in a very real way. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we even see the outward manifestation of these things in the testimony of the people at this church, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait from His Son, wait for His Son from heaven. And now it's a year later. As this was a church that was doing all that a church should do, the enemy was doing all that the enemy does. As a church is growing and flourishing in the Lord, as a person is growing and flourishing in the Lord, there's going to be the reality of spiritual attack. And now, about a year later, that's what this church was suffering. What are the devil's doings? Well, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, that we are to cast our anxiety upon him because he cares for you upon the Lord. Be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for inroads, inroads of confusion and perversion. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I am afraid that even as Eve was deceived by the Spirit's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is the perversion, the perversion of the truth. 
And it's how the enemy gains inroads into a church and how an enemy divides or seeks to destroy a church. We need to take note how he attacks someone or a church that is doing well in the Lord. And we have an example here in 2 Thessalonians. Because personally speaking, Satan cannot wreck your work of faith. Our faith is in God. That's a done deal. He cannot lessen my labor of love if I am dedicated to the Lord, but he can pillage my patience of hope. Patience of hope through his lies. Because again, my hope, my hope is in that which I can't see. My hope is in something that, well, I've just been told about in the Word of God. Now, I believe it just as sure as I see you here today that I believe that Christ went to prepare a place for me and one day He's going to bring me unto Himself. But through the trials and tribulations and just the reality of life and the hardship of life, that, well, you can real easily call it into question. Now, if He can undermine your trusting in Christ for your future, He can lessen your effect for today. If you don't have a surety about your future and your security in Christ, you're not going to be as effective today. If I know that my my being is secure for eternity in the Lord, I'll give all. Because look at the example of the apostles. You, You look at them in the Gospels and you're thinking, this is the future of the church? And then even in Acts, they're told to go away, but what did they do? The elect apostle, they weren't told to do that. But then they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then these men, well, looking at the apostle Peter, it's who we closed with last week, this man who said, i will give my life for you, Lord, even if everybody else forsakes you. But then a little girl confronted him, and he denied the Lord even three times. But now he's willing to give his life for the Lord. Why is that? Because he saw the resurrected Lord. And he knew just as surely as Jesus was resurrected, based upon the promises that he had given him, he's going to be resurrected as well. And so all of the apostles realized, because they were all martyred for their faith, with the exception of the apostle John, but they were all martyred for their faith. They were willing to go because they knew that there was something better. They knew that there was something better, and that's what drove them, and that's what kept them. But now if the enemy's able to enter in and cause you to question that future... What's it going to do for your boldness today? What's it going to do for your ministry or to your ministry today? So if he can undermine your trusting in Christ for the future, he can lessen your effectiveness for today. Because again, think about it. The enemy's lost. If you're a born-again believer, if you're a born-again believer today, enemy's lost you. He's lost you, and there's nothing that he can do about that as far as getting you back being a child of, of, of the devil because you're a child of God. But what he seeks to do now is to lessen your effectiveness. And he seems to do such a great job at that. Now, the absolute worst thing that you can do to a person, I believe, is to convince them that there is no hope in this life. I believe that's the essence of what occurs in everybody's life who takes their own life. Unfortunately, at some point, they just came to a belief of some sort that there's no hope. Well, when our Christian lives, if we come to the belief that there is no hope in our Christian life, it'll effectively kill off our witness for today. So according to the devil's method of deception, a false teaching had entered the church after Paul left. Again, it's only been a year. It was being taught that the rapture had already taken place and they were in the midst of the tribulation. 
There was even a forged letter, tradition says, that was from Paul that validated this. Now, with the persecution that was coming from Rome at that day, it was hard to dispute those teachings. Now, if somebody came up to you and told you that, you know what, you missed the rapture, you're in the middle of the tribulation today. And you can look around and you think, well, maybe they're right. We live in a country that used to seek after the Lord and the things of the Lord, but we live in a very godless country today, and it's only getting worse. We see ISIS and some of the things that they're doing, and they match some of the things that are going on in the, in the book of Revelation with the decapitations and the murders and the viciousness and all of those things. I, I, I see the earthquakes as they are increasing. I see the floods as that they are increasing. There's tsunamis, and there's all of these things that, although they were in our mind before, but now they just really seem to be coming to, well, they're, they're ridiculous proportions. You know what state right now is the state that is, has the highest frequency of earthquakes? I bet you Betsy knows. It's Oklahoma. Oklahoma? Yeah, that's Oklahoma. Yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, I think it was Friday, there was a tornado warning. Actually, there was a tornado in Colorado. We're coming up with all of these kind of weird things. And so we see that the weather is going upside down, just as it says in the book. So my point is, Somebody, if you were unaware, immature, somebody could probably do a pretty good job of convincing you that you missed the rapture and you are now in the tribulation. Now think of the repercussions of missing the rapture. If you miss the rapture, that means that you're not saved because all born-again believers are going to be taken in the rapture. And if you miss the rapture, that means you weren't saved and you'd be thinking, well, what did I do wrong? I honestly received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Somebody preached the gospel and, and I received it and, and now seemingly I've been rejected by God. Either that or, or maybe Jesus isn't as faithful as the word says that he's faithful. Maybe he was unable to save me. Or maybe just this whole Christian thing isn't true. And so you can see how these inroads would be made just simply through this one false doctrine and false perception of that doctrine. And so the devil, the devil is very effective in what he does. He knows what really, if you will, what works. But also what you see is, is the necessity of knowing and understanding eschatology. We're told, we were told in, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. And I'll tell you today, you ought not to be ignorant of this. So you know what's going on in the world today so that you understand the things that God is doing. He's given you his word so that we're able to understand these things. But as we do come to an understanding, I'm strengthened in my Christian walk. But if I'm ignorant of these things, my Christian walk is not going to be all that it could be. Now what impresses Paul is that regardless of all that is going on in this town at this time, they still are carrying on as they should. And that's what we're seeing in verses 1 through 4. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, his traveling companions, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, now, again, this is in the state that they are in at this time. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, 
as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. So they were still growing in their faith. They were still trusting in God for the day. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. And so they were still expressing love, that labor of love for one another. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And so first we see that Paul once again validates them as a recognized church. He confirms in verse 1 their relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. How do you know if you're in Christ? Well, if Christ is in you. If you receive Jesus Christ, then you will know and understand that you are in Christ, in the will of God, and in the grace of God. And Paul is confirming that. And so in the things that he's about to say in this theology that he's about to give, he's confirming that they have right standing through the word of God in the sight of God. Paul then refers to the resources available to the church from God in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God. Grace to you and peace from God. There's no peace apart from God. There's peace that man is able to foster. There's the peace that the world gives, but it's temporary and very ineffective for its purpose. But then there's a peace. Because apart from God, man doesn't have peace because we're told that in the Bible. In John chapter 16, we're told that the Spirit convicts man of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, that man always knows that he's a sinner. They may laugh about it. I mean, they do. You know, what do they call Las Vegas? Sin City. What do you call two people that live together apart from marriage? Oh, we're, we're living in sin. You know, and so they, they understand sin and what it is. They just choose to soften it. Sin, righteousness, that man knows that there's a God. All civilizations worship something. And even an atheist, he worships himself but knows that there is a God. Matter of fact, most atheists aren't really atheists. They're agnostic. They just choose to not acknowledge God. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Everybody knows. This is God that convicts the world. Everybody knows that there's going to be a judgment. So everybody knows that they've got one foot on this earth and one foot on the banana peel. That their life could be taken from them at any moment. At any moment, you could get the bad news from the doctor. At any moment, you can get in that accident. I can remember, it, it just every time I would drive by there, and I drive by there every day, it was Sunday night after service. I was going home from service. It's when I had a Jeep, you know, a little Jeep. Driving down Philadelphia, past Euclid, and just before I get to San Antonio, there's this side street. It was probably about 9, 9.30 on a Sunday night, and probably about five feet in front of me, a car just shoots out of this side street and goes right in front of me, just right across Philadelphia. And he's about 30 or 40 miles an hour. And I'm just thinking, if, if I was 10 more feet ahead, I'd be dead. I'd be dead. And it would happen just like that, just like that. And so the world knows that, well, he's convicted. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he's understanding that his life could be taken from him at any time. And so... There's no peace. Now, we try to entertain ourselves. We make these realistic movies with surround sound and whatever they call the big screens and all of that stuff. Or he tries to sedate himself with alcohol, drugs, relationships, whatever it might be. But nonetheless, it's still there and the pain is there. But, but Paul's talking to the church. And in the church, he says, you, you have grace. Because, see, it's not about you. It's not about you stopping the bad things and all of that because you never could. This is all about grace and the peace that you have. See, no longer am I convicted of sin, righteousness, 
and judgment. Not to the degree that the unbeliever is. Yeah, if I sin, there's going to be conviction in that. But I know if I repent, then I'm forgiven. Of righteousness, well, I know that there is a God. I know there's a God because I worship him. And, and he's my father. And, and, and I'm his favored, not favorite, well, maybe I am, but favored child anyway. And then judgment, I know that there's going to be a judgment. But that's part of where the peace comes from. I'm not going to be judged. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And so in the midst of the raging world, those at Thessalonica, those at Ontario, we know that we have peace with God. But notice something's missing in verses 3 and 4. First, we have the first part of verse 3, that work of faith. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Their faith, their work of faith is becoming more and more obvious. And so they're moving forward in that. And then their labor of love, the last part, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. And so they continue to labor, but they continue to labor in God. They have a love of God, and because they have a love of God, they have a love of the brethren. But their patience has changed, if you will, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Their patience has gone from trusting in God for their future to just trusting in Him for the day. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can't leave the future out of the equation. Sooner or later, you're going to get discouraged when you do not see the day getting better. And that's why, are we, that's why we are to have hope in the Lord, because we know that our days are not going to get better. The days are going to get worse. Spiritually speaking, compare the Bible to society today. Have things gotten better? Now, I'm talking about a relatively long haul. I was born in the 50s, so start in the 50s. Look, morally speaking, at the 50s. And, and I know not this whole nation was not saved or whatever, but I'm just saying morally speaking. You look at the 50s, you compare them to the 70s. There was a big drop there, continued to go downhill in the 70s and the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and now the 2010s were definitely on a downward spiral. Morally speaking, things are not, gonna get, are not getting better. And I'll tell you, I read to the end of the book, they're not going to get better, they're going to get worse. But if I have hope in the Lord for the future... I can deal with that. I can continue to persevere. I can t continue to move forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. When your hope is in heaven, your ability for patience is based upon the promises of God in your future, and that's what it's all about. It's not based upon what's happening here and now, because my hope is not in this world. My hope is in heaven. And that should give you an element of security. That should give you an element of perseverance. That should give you an element of patience. Now, a very well-known verse came to Israel during an intense time of trouble. And we ought not to take this verse out of its context because its context just causes it to flourish so much even more. In Jeremiah chapter 29, Israel is in Babylonian captivity. And so can you imagine, you've got all of these rich promises of God, and we're God's people. But then all of a sudden you're taken into Babylonian captivity. And you can wonder, what happened? 
what happened? We had all these promises. We're Israel, and now we've been taken into captivity by this foreign nation. Well, God appeared to them, and what He appeared to them in the midst of their tribulation, He appeared to them for the purpose of strengthening the hope that they are to have in Him. It says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, it's important to understand that this is a message from God, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, and so there is a divine time frame that God is working on here, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. This place is Jerusalem, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. I have thoughts of... This isn't evil. That I'm, this is... Thoughts that I have towards you because it's necessary. It's a necessary time of trouble and tribulation. Why? Because we know the big picture. He's pointing towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To give you a future and what? A hope. Strengthen up to know that God's plan is still coming to pass. It's still marching forward. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Then you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. And so God's doing the work. Don't give up. Don't despair. Because God hasn't and God doesn't. And so we go through a trial or tribulation, whatever it might be, and we can so easily have that mindset that God's given up on me. Well, I've looked at the Bible from cover to cover. Don't have it all memorized quite yet. Matter of fact, I think I forget more than I retain at times. But he doesn't give up. Never does he give up. Matter of fact, our God, our God is faithful. So hope, hope is based upon what God has said. It is validated by what he has done, and it is embraced because of our expectations of what he will do. And I so look forward to what God will do. Oh, how our hearts yearn within us that one day we will be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, don't hear that as a cliché. One day, if you're a born-again believer, you will be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. One day you will be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. When you get home today, read Revelation 5. You're going to be there if you're a born-again believer. You need to receive that and you need to embrace that. Because if you don't, it's just not going to have the hope in your Christian life. Just is not going to be all that it could possibly be. Now Jesus Christ and John, he's about to be crucified. What is it? that he wants to leave with his disciples, he wants to leave them with hope. They're in a little bit. They're going to see him crucified upon the cross. But what does he tell them in John 14, 1? Let not your heart be troubled. As you're seeing me, well, they didn't see him because they belled on him, but they knew that he was crucified. When you hear that I've been crucified, do not fall into despair. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, are many places to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Now when he says you, that's not y'all. That's you personally. 
He's wanting them to know. He's wanting them to hear as if he's speaking to each one of them individually. He's wanting you to hear as if he's speaking to each of you individually. I go to prepare a place for you, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that being the case, what was it that the Lord was giving them at these last moments? Instruction for ministry, without a doubt, but also he was strengthening their hope so that they would continue steadfastly in that work of ministry. How is the attack on hope that we have in our future, how do we overcome it? Again, it's the importance of eschatology. I must know the truth. I must be well-versed in the Word of God. Once again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And I've seen the contrast. I've seen it as I have the opportunity to officiate over funerals. I've seen the funerals where there are, well, the person either wasn't saved, if they were, nobody knew about it, very secular, and because I'm a pastor, they call me to do a funeral. I don't turn funerals down. There's always the opportunity to share the gospel, but I can, you know, and I'm here to do the funeral, and I'm here just to tell you what the Bible says about death, and I can see the people just rolling their eyes and just think, oh, I've got to endure this. How long am I going to have these? A pastor probably going to speak for three hours. I rarely speak longer than two hours. Come on. I try to keep it around 10 to 15 minutes because I know my audience. But I give them the gospel. And I can see the despair. And I can see as people are here, as people come up and give testimony, and I've heard the weird things. Yeah, I know. I don't care what the pastor says. Yeah, he's sitting up in heaven, up on a porch, drinking some Jack Daniels. Do you really think that that's what heaven is about? I mean, I guess their perception of heaven is you get drunk and you don't have a hangover, and that's what makes it so great. Um, But again, you just hear such ridiculous things. But then I've seen the other side of the, the coin, whatever. I've seen those that do have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I see the heartache, without a doubt, but I also see the excitement, knowing that that person's in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And again, that's what makes it all worth while because each and every one of us assuming that the lord tarries we're all going to experience death but that's okay jesus christ has overcome death but i must know the truth i must know the truth of god's word or i'm an easy target for the enemy even job when hearing of his worldly ruin he turned to his heavenly hope in job chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. His trust was in the Lord and not in in anything of this world. Faith that is tested is faith that can be trusted. Hope that endures is hope that secures. Hope that secures, and it would be your security for today in the midst of the hardships that we go. Do you see the importance of hope? You know, hope kind of gets second billing to faith because, you know, salvation comes through faith, and again, it's important. But hope is just as important. As my salvation comes through faith, hope hope is what makes faith flourish within my life. And the both of them, they need to be embraced equally. Verse 5, 
speaking of the tribulations that they endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in the day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now, Paul takes time to encourage them to take time to make a biblical observation of all the tribulation that goes on in life. God's hand is in that. I mean, if all things are working together for the good, then the bad things and the good things, God is doing a work in the midst of all of them. The more you grow in the Lord, attacks are going to increase proportionally. The more the ungodly, the more ungodly the world becomes, the more God is going to remove his hand of protection from them. And so we're going to see the hardship. Again, we have hope in God, so we've got contentment in the midst of it, but we're still going to see the hardship in all of these things. That's why when the unbeliever asks, well, if there's really a God, how come all of this stuff's going on? Well, I see, because all this stuff is going on, there's really a God. Because the more godless that this world becomes, the harder you see these things, or or, or at least the the more you see these things happening, and the greater in intensity that they're going on, because God is, he's trying to get the attention. First, he's trying to get the attention of those who should already have their attention, the church, that the church would become mobilized in the word of God. And then secondly, he's trying to get the intention of the world. He's turning up the heat, convicting them again of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we have all of these things going on in our society and in the world today. But I know that one day, God is going to make all of these things right. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing about all these, this, this deep theology of the Lord in the book of Romans, he came to a great conclusion, a conclusion that we should come to Pretty much every time that we read the scriptures, this is in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God's got a plan and he's brought me into it. He doesn't reveal the whole plan to me, but nonetheless, I'm in his plans. I'm part of his purpose, just as surely as you are. And I need to, to, to gain strength from that and I need to gain hope from that. Verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and so they're going to suffer repercussions, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when you're going to have rest. You're going to have rest when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Again, the apostle Paul thought he would be around during the time of rapture. Instead, Paul's rest came on the day that he was died, and the day he the day he died, and the day he was taken into the presence of the Lord. When are you going to have rest? I don't know which one it's going to be, but I do know that one day that you are going to have rest, and your rest is going to be in the presence of God. And I so look forward to that. That rest, that rest that we have, that is in essence going to be 
just more than we have today. What do we have today? Today we have contentment. Contentment means to have a peace in the midst of trials and tribulations. But you're not going to have trials and tribulations in heaven. In heaven, you're going to have true rest. You need to hold on to that. You need to grasp it. And most importantly, you need to believe it. And then starting in verse 11, well, verses 11 and verse 12, Paul offers a five-fold prayer, a pattern of prayer for fellow believers. First of all, he prays for God's plan. Verse 11, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling, praying for God's plan in their lives. God's got a purpose for the church at Thessalonica. God's got a plan and purpose for the church at Ontario. He's got a plan for every church that exists. Paul's praying for that plan in their life. Secondly, he prays for God's pleasure in their lives and fulfill, again, verse 11, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Kind of amazing thing. Your life, your obedience, your walk in the Lord gives God, Lord God of the universe, pleasure. God finds pleasure in your life. And again, can you grasp those things? Can you believe these things? That God finds pleasure in your obedience and in the way that you serve him. And so, again, if I can hold on to these things, it's going to strengthen me in these, this life. Next, he prays for God's power and the work of faith with power. The things that God calls me to do, God will enable me to do. And we see that displayed at this church at Thessalonica. Even though this false teaching has come on in, they continue steadfastly serving God because of the power of God. Next, he prays for God's purpose. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. That God, well, God would be seen in me, but God would be seen through me to this dying world. And then lastly, he prays for God's provision according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. His provision is his grace, and his grace keeps giving. We see that the things of this world, they're getting pretty bad. It's getting pretty dark. I've got children, and I've got grandchildren. I look at my grandchildren, I'm thinking, man, the things that, well, start in the 50s, I see morally how far downhill things have gotten today. I look at my grandchildren. What's it going to be like when they're my age? You're assuming the Lord tarries. But you know what? The same God that watches over and keeps me is the same God that watches over and keeps them. And I look at them and I see the responsibility that I have to continue on in faith, to continue on in love, and to continue on in hope if not for myself, for the future generations. And as we do these things, we see God truly glorified through even the darkness of the day today. And so can you imagine, I mean, if you can really grasp on that one day I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. And based upon that truth, I just simply ask you, so what are you prepared to do today? The apostles, they gave their lives. The Lord's not necessarily asking you to give your life, but definitely he's asking you to give of your life for his glory. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that...
we would see the truthfulness of your word and grasp on to that, Father, that we would not lose hope today. Again, one of the worst things that somebody can do is convince somebody else that there is no hope. But Lord, your word tells us that there is hope and our hope is in our Savior who loves us and gave himself for us. And so, Lord, I do pray for our future, but I pray for today. Based upon what our future will be, I pray, Lord, that we would be bold today. Bold today when given the opportunity formally here at church in our service to you, but how much more so, Lord, as we go about the busyness of our lives. And so, Father, as our Christianity is truly the essence of who we are, I pray, Lord, that it would be freely seen by all. Fill us with your Spirit. Enable us for your purposes, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?